Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, this dude, gorgeous, beautiful, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Important for this podcast and this series is that we were both college wrestlers and college wrestling teammates at UW Lacrosse. Today, we're going to be furthering our grappling with biomechanics, or I think the actual title is wrestling with biomechanics series. And today we're going to be talking about the underhook. The underhook is an awesome setup. It's an awesome way to get into certain positions, extremely important in MMA due to the clinch as well as due to cage wrestling. Uh, So we're going to talk about different ways to train it, what we like as far as actual technique with underhooks, um, as well as some of the different injuries that could be caused from underhook positions or whether you are giving the underhook or have the overhook and could be flared up. Alex, you like underhooks. You're a big underhook guy. How do you use it? What are some applications that you like to do? Well, like you said, the underhook was kind of my go-to stand-up and folk style wrestling. Um, I use that series for almost all my setups of, of my shots. And uh, I believe it's, is it Matt Gentry? Is that the Canadian? Uh, yep. Yeah, Matt Gentry. Yeah, some Gentry. But he had a, he has a great series of it. And I think it's just on YouTube. But um this is what me and my coaches at UW lacrosse got working into, but yeah, I would always try and set up an underhook and get there. And then there's, it opens so much um, on the feet and folk style wrestling specifically because it isolates the side. Um, if you're under the arm, you, you've already taken away one layer of defense, get good head position. And then the legs all yours or um, into a multitude of other things. But I really like what Austin's saying because it's so useful in mixed martial arts. Like, the underhook the value does not go away just because we take it out of a folk style wrestling context like clinch work up on the cage wrestling jujitsu even like even on the ground underhooks are super valuable um so when i get into an underhook i mean i'm always looking to attack i guess the legs because of the folk style wrestling but i just know that i'm in a more advantageous position because i can manipulate the other person's body a lot more freely than I can with an overhook and you have attacks from an overhook, but you're limited in, in your leverage from that position because your center of mass is higher. You're more extended when you have the overhook. So the underhook puts you in a generally stronger, a generally more supported position because you have the lower center of gravity, you have the leverage. And a lot of times you have the ability to keep a wider base because you are lower. Right. And so when I think about underhooks, I think about there's three real, there's a bunch of different underhooks, but I think of three real main categories of underhook. You have your shallow underhook. This is typically going to be our more freestyle based wrestlers, um, actually, or Greco as well, where you're on the show on the scapula on the shoulder blade. You're not actually digging up and trying to get to the clavicle or to the the top of the shoulder blade, if you will. Um, And that's going to be a lot more for our foot sweeps. That's going to be actually a lot of Sambo players. If they're digging underhooks, they're going to do that as well as our judo players. Um, uh, Even with the gi, it allows you to kind of pull these different things. Then we also have the next step up of control or locking down, which is going to be the straight up deep same side underhook where you're going after the top of the shoulder blade and trying to pull them down towards the ground. This is going to be when you think about a standard underhook, we dig that same side underhook, we get underneath the shoulder blade, my shoulders under his, and I'm pulling down on that same side. This is the most common. This is the one that's typically used for a lot of setups and wrestling. um, And you're able to move and groove. And for MMA purposes, you're able to use that in a very effective way to throw our knees Um, or control on the cage. It allows us to apply pressure to that same side shoulder, pin him to the cage, 
and cut off his movement one way or the other, allowing us to A, either strike or B, open up the floodgates. We can roll that thumb, throw some punches, and then come back into our shots. And then, well, before we get to what you want to say, the last one is going to be a cross shoulder underhook. So we're not actually going to the same side trap. We go to the far side trap. Think about like a seat belt position, but for the upper body where I latch onto that far trap and then I'm allowing more lockdown, but less offensive opportunities, a much more controlling position to tie people up and slow down the fight or to slow down the match, but not as many scoring opportunities as there are for the same side or the shallow underhook. I would actually say that the shallow underhook has the most scoring opportunities. The lockdown on the same side is going to be the most popular because it combines control with offensive opportunities. And then that far side shoulder is going to be the most controlling, but the least actual offense could be scored. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thought crossed my mind too, when we were talking about the lockdown on the same side with that underhook, like not only do you have the most control and the most opportunity, but if we think about it on the ground in jujitsu against the cage with, with fence wrestling, like it gives you the most octagon and the most um, like awareness, the most octagon control, because that's how, you get off the cage, right? You dig an underhook and you can leverage from that position to turn your back to the center of the octagon, which is the more favorable position, if you will, if you're looking at a judge scorecard. But um, you dig in those underhooks and, and, and pummeling is a huge skill to get into. Regardless, if you're a striker, um, you need to know how to pummel and get in and out because it opens those offensive opportunities. It's just the same as managing distance. When you're striking, you can manage distance in that short clinch position, right? So using the underhooks to not only control your position within the octagon, but your position in relative in uh, relation to your opponent and to throwing your strikes is, you know, is another great benefit of, you know, being able to out underhook your opponent no for sure and i called i call the underhook a transition position because it's typically not going to score but it's going to set you up for a lot of different things right so the underhook is a fantastic opportunity for you as an m if we're talking mma to either transition into our strikes go to a body or then go to the right but what i tell all of the people that i coach and all the people that i work with is if you're stuck on it for more than 10 seconds at a time, 10 being a long amount of time, you're actually wasting an opportunity, right? My first, my, my high school coach told me something that's always stuck with me when I coach is if you put your hands on somebody, you better fucking use it, right? Don't waste energy. Don't waste movement. And I feel like a lot of the times when I see not just an MMA, but college wrestling underhooks are wasted and movement is, is wasted because you dig that underhook and you're like, Oh, I'm in a great position. But then you forget that, hey, this isn't actually, it's not about positioning. It's about yeah. scoring. It's about opening up offense. It's about using that to transition to all the things that are going to allow you to look good on a scorecard or to score yeah. points. Well, yeah, people get to quote unquote good positions and then they sit on them, right? Because, you know, I, I have the advantage right now, but but sitting in a good position is not the angle. Sitting in a good position, um, getting to a good position opens up doors for you, but sitting on that position gives your opponent more and more time to either scheme or to get out of it or wait for you to create or initiate because that's when most of the counter offense happens is when you're sitting in a position and then all of a sudden I go for something, but my opponent's not prepared because I've been sitting in that position, which transitions well into the underhook series that I utilized in college or that um, kind of goes into some folk style wrestling is as soon as you get to the underhook, it's like lay attack, head attack, snap down specifically in UFC. You can get somebody straight down to the ground. 
Um, so once you get to that underhook, it's all about misdirection and controlling your opponent's kind of balance or direction of their body. Cause we can push in with the underhook and go like a far side ankle tap or a knee tap. And then that's going to elicit a reaction from our opponent and they're going to weight that foot. And then we can all of a sudden pull down and snap and go right into a snap down. And now we're in a top position from a snap down. So using the underhook as soon as you get there but also with a misdirection, with an intention that I can go to this option, that option. I can grab a single leg straight from it. I can snap down straight from it. I can go far side. I can dig another underhook or pass by. Um, I think that position is drastically underutilized in MMA is the double, uh, the double underhooks or the uh, body lock position. Mm-hmm. No, and something you said that stuck out is intention, right? Yeah. When I, to, to add a caveat to what I said before is don't sit in a position when you move out of this transition period, there has to be intention behind what you're doing. You shouldn't just move for no, with no purpose. Right. And that's what, like, that's what Alex did really, really well. when he was a wrestler. Every time he moved from an underhook, there was intention behind what he was doing. He was focusing on trying to get to the next dominate position or to score points. Right. And that's where I see a lot as somebody that kind of my focus in coaching is a lot of the wrestling, but the cage wrestling aspect is that, We get the underhook and either A, we hang on it and just try to control on the cage or B, we get the underhook and then we rush the position because you mistook what I said as, oh, we can't can't sit an underhook forever. Sitting there is okay if you know what you're doing, if you're setting up a certain technique, right? If you're doing it with intention, but you can't just move to move, right? That's how you lose fights. (laughs) <laughs> that's how you get clipped when, when you're just moving to move and your head's down, you get clipped with the knee and you, you go night, night. Right. So it's one of those things that if you have an underhook, know your options. I always talk about with my fighters is flow charts in my brain uh, is for as chaotically unorganized <laughs> as I am as a human in my brain is just a shitload of flow charts, right? When I'm wrestling, I can close my eyes in certain positions and I know, hey, if I have an underhook, I'm going to try it in, in my brain. Typically, depending on who I'm, obviously it's different depending on who I'm wrestling, right? But if I have an underhook, my first thing is probably going to be to try to get my, sh- my shoulder blade underneath his. And that's going to open up my ability to A, either attack a neck and I can try to bring, uh, try to cut the corner and take the back. Think about like a shuck, if you will. Or I can go from here and I can drop to a single and try to dump. If he stops that, I go back to my underhook. I pull him off the cage with a bounce. I go into a body lock, X, Y, and Z, right? I'm not going to go through all the flow charts. That's going to be boring for all of y'all. But you have to think about the first option is here. If that first option doesn't happen, the next option is here. If that option doesn't happen, the next option is here. Having a plan F, what is it? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, right? I'm glad I had to just say the alphabet to get to the letter after F, <laughs> but having a plan in place and having a flow chart in your brain is only going to open up more opportunities. We talk about all the time, the prepared are the ones that don't waver under pressure. The prepared are the ones that succeed when the bright light's on. You don't feel nervous. You feel confident. It's all from having those flow charts and preparing to understand the position. Exactly. And let's, let's coin a, a phrase here. Let's say position with intention. Yes. Or, so I, I think that that's huge. And that could be applicable to your skills, your wrestling skills, or, or managing distance in, in your discipline of mixed martial arts or mixed martial arts in general. But I mean, that's a, a good saying for the weight room as well, right? Whenever yep. we're starting a movement, we got to get in good position because good position precedes good movement. So mm-hmm. get in good position, 
with the intention to move well. And I, I think position with intention makes a lot of sense. If we're going to talk about, you know, training an underhook series or talking about the shoulder blade and the shoulder, shoulder girdle in itself, training that in the weight room. You know, there's a lot that can be done to stabilize, to uh, secure that position and to become strong in a lot of those underhook positions. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is an Austin term, so we'll, we'll let him talk about it in a second is, you know, joint centration of the shoulder blade. Um, yeah. Austin talks about that too much. Um, but <laughs> what I think about is a, a stable shoulder blade that's depressed and that is strong and, and stabilizes through the lat and the lower trap. Um, too many times do we get so, uh, shrugged up and show stressed in, in a lot of these positions and, and granted wrestling and grappling is a stressful endeavor, but you're a lot stronger when you depress and when you lock down through like, think of like a farmer's carry when you're reaching your shoulders to the ground or, or when we're doing a, a bent over row. And instead of shrugging up to your ears and your shoulders, think about pulling the shoulder blades down into your back and, and using the bigger muscle with a, a lot more strength potential to lock into a position that's just being efficient with your movements. So when we get into that underhook, we need to hold that position by locking it down in our own shoulder while we lock down their other shoulder. Um, and there's a bunch of different methods, in the weight room that I'm sure we'll get into. I say weight room in the training center or whatever um, to get into that. But Austin, what do you want to say about joint centration? I was about to say, dude, you said I could get into it and then you just kind of <laughs> jumped right in. And I'm like, well, fuck, there's nothing else for me to say. You crushed I it, know, right? I know. It, I for, know. Those who, the, for those who don't know what centration is, right? I've talked about it, I think, on every single podcast we have. Mm-hmm. But gents, joint centration, especially in the shoulder girdle, is going to be the maximal surface area between the shoulder blade and or the scapula and then your humerus and that should be at maximal surface area the maximal surface area between those so the most bone on bone space the most bone on bone space in that joint or in that free floating area is going to lead to the maximal muscle recruitment the maximal muscle recruitment link in leads to increased stability but also the potential for increased power generation and then that obviously translates down the line into increased punching increased for this podcast, increased shoulder stability when we're digging those underhooks and being able to use that in that transitionary or that intention of position or positional intention. Yeah. And and when I think about joint centration with the shoulder blade, I mean, you, you can go straight to like, you're going to like winging scaps. But what I think about is if I'm looking at somebody's back, whether they have a t-shirt on or, or they don't have a t-shirt on, can I see the outline of their shoulder blade? Can I see the inside of their shoulder blade sticking off of their back? Um, in a centrated uh, scapular shoulder blade, you're you're gonna have a hard time finding that definitive line of a shoulder blade. Um, when people are in a less optimal position with their shoulder blades, you're gonna see a very clear line of this is the inside of their shoulder blade and it's kind of sticking out into their skin. Um, and again, there, there's different methods to go about correcting that or, or building strength to get into a better position. Um, but those are, are good ways to identify it. And one of our building a fighter assessment movements is the um, low bear lift off where you're in a bear position. So hands and knees on the ground, you lift your knees off the ground uh, with your back flat and you check to see where are the shoulder blades. When I do that, do the shoulder blades straight shrug to the uh, ears? Do you see a big outline throughout the uh, chest? Are you kind of sunken through the shoulders? We can look at how an athlete stabilizes through that assessment and then gain a picture of what to do from that juncture, right? Because if we go through this whole liftoff and the shoulder blade is stable, doesn't move, I can hardly see an outline of their shoulder. 
then we're probably pretty good. But if I see as soon as I pick one hand up off the ground, the shoulder sinks all the way through the skin and I can see a physical gap between the shoulder blade and the, like the back or the spine, then yes, we need to start working on some of that stability through various exercises through, I'm a big fan of body weight and prone or push up or bare positions to try and correct that. But it's all about seeing the shoulder blade in the movement. And then we can even watch that when you wrestle, which is better to see what are the positions that you're achieving and could they be more optimal? For sure. And, and some also to note is for, for the athletes, the MMA athletes that also strike, there's typically going to be a little bit of decentration in the first place. Right? So if there's, if there's a, if they are a striker, their boxing coach is telling them to be able to shell up, right? So shelling up, lifting up the shoulder blades into your ears, being able to stabilize your neck a little. Um, this is just a standard. I mean, there's a reason why people do it. It stood the test of time, though, that it's a beneficial beneficial way to load the shoulders for a boxing-based movement, right? Does Is that good or bad for performance? To be determined. But again, something that I always say is high performance isn't always healthy. I think this might be one of those cases where that slight decentration of the shoulder, that slight scapular upward translation or that shrug could actually be a performance benefit for the boxing realm. That doesn't mean that when we get into the grappling aspects, that the most beneficial position is going to be that upward translation of the shoulder when I have under. I would argue that the opposite, like Alex has said, is going to be the most stable. Because think about it. If you've grabbed an underhook, which one is a more dominant position? You trying to lift them up with the underhook and shrugging your shoulder? Or you dragging them to the ground, towards the ground with a nice centrated shoulder, so shoulder blade down, using your lat, ah, trying to get their weight on their feet. I would argue, based off the way I described it, but also me doing it before, that driving somebody down towards the ground is a little bit more beneficial and more stable of a shoulder position in a grappling exchange. So that's that's pairing up between the two. Um, but Alex is hundred percent right when talking about the centration of the shoulder and talking about like that, that scapular centration, if you will, one way I love to do it, um, is going to be, uh, everybody knows I'm a DNS nut. I love DNS positions. I love DNS loading. Um, but again, it's just one tool in the toolbox, a way that I do this. Um, and I have a video on my Instagram. We'll throw it on building a fighter. Now as a YouTube page, Alex doesn't even know this yet. Um, but we have a YouTube page now and we'll throw a video of the sideline um, get up that I do for a lot of scapular stability and scapular centration um, on there for you guys. This is a position where we're focusing on trunk stability as well as scapular centration as we're moving. So laying in a sideline position, driving into external, uh, technically it would be external rotation, closed chain to lift the body up and then eccentric external rotation on the way back down, loading the shoulder and forcing the femur through small micro movements to actually increase the surface area of into the glenoid fossa or to the shoulder plate. I think you meant to say humorous, not femur. Oh shit. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> it's all good. I, I talk a lot about hip centration. Yeah. I mean, yeah, similar, <laughs> similar concepts. Um, and where I want to go from that is you're talking about dragging down and using the, the position. And then we can talk about strength training a little bit because I want to pretty much I do what I want. Oh, okay. Cause it's all about you, Alex. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> but the shoulder blade specifically in the centration type of pieces where I see a lot of people, you know, skip over the small steps to get to where they want to go. You know, you want to do a ton of pull-ups. That's cool. You probably can, but how are you doing the pull-ups? You want to do Turkish get-ups. You want to do overhead pressing. Like all that stuff is great and it's cool. 
but how are you doing it? How are you achieving these positions? If it's through a compromised movement pattern, then we're not really doing any favors. Um, we might be getting stronger in a general sense and, and creating stability in the joint that way. But if we really take the the steps to watch the shoulder blades centrate, to put our scaps in a great position when we do a pull-up, things get a lot harder, but also they become more valuable. Like you think about pulling an underhook, if you have an underhook, pulling that uh, your opponent to the ground and pulling it down looks a lot like a chin-up. Looks a lot like I'm holding the bar, pulling my chin over the bar, and it's the same, a similar movement pattern. But this becomes a lot more effective if I can stay tight to myself and I can keep my shoulder blade back and down at the same time. And we need to be able to move and hold that position through strength. We also need it in a power capacity when I'm snapping down. If I'm pulling down all of a sudden and I'm hitting in a second, I got to be able to snap and have some power with that. So that's where we get like med ball slams. That's where we get, you know, if, if you're strong enough, a speed strength pull up and, and things like this, but we got to set the shoulder blades in a good position first position with intention. Again, put the shoulder blades in a good position as you move through the chin up or the pull up. Don't just sit there and trap out 20 pull ups because you can like, again, cool, but what's the actual benefit of it? So, and I, I mean, same thing with overhead pressing. Like, do you actually have the movement capacity for an overhead press or would you be better suited due to landmine pressing? Because I think, again, that helps the shoulder blade move through a lot better um, range of motion, a lot more applicable range of motion. So just problematize some of those those constants or those, you know, bread and butter or, or uh, foundational strength exercises. Let's think about those in a different sense and think about, is this actually how we should be moving through it or, or what? could be more effective through some of these movements that we jump to, you know, my favorite is a Turkish get up. Like so many people jump to heavy Turkish get ups or like <laughs> try and like, it's cool to do a Turkish get up with 90 pounds. Like, sure. But are you stabilizing correctly or, or are you just able to do it? Well, know? dude, that's the big thing with, I see with pull-ups with, I I'm trying to think about, I don't think anybody that's come into me has done a proper pull-up. Everybody wants to extend excessive extension through the lumbar spine or through the TL junction, and which is great for lat recruitment. Yay. <laughs> but what Alex is talking, the position with intention actually increases transference into sport movement, right? If you're able to increase your movement literacy in the weight room and be able to perform proper function, if you're doing proper patterns, it's going to increase transference because your body's going to be more aware of the movement when it needs to be doing certain things, right? Yeah. So I see all the time that people are doing pull-ups and they just have an extremely, and also with the other example, Alex talked about the overhead press. It's just lumbar extension that is literally compensating for all of the different movements that you're lacking, whether yep. that be shoulder flexion, whether that be T-spine extension, whether that be for the pull-up uh, ability to do full range of motion through the glenohumeral joint, whether that be scat or scapular stabilization, all these different patterns that I don't want to come into because we're talking about underhook. Mm-hmm. The lumbar, <laughs> the, uh, the lumbar extension is actually the thing that is most being used for the movement and for the stability pattern. So it's not going to be as transferable because that's not typically what you should be doing in a fight, right? That's not how you're fighting. So it's not going to have the most transference as far as a proximal stability equals distal mobility pattern and brain recognition. Amen. That's, uh, that's a good summary and very scientific. Let's talk about um, some injuries that can happen off of an underhook and in the compromising positions or compromising movements that happen um, from 
getting into underhooks or, or just in that general position or general anatomical realm? Yeah, for sure. So um, two I want to talk about. One's a foosh injury, so falling on an outstretched hand, um, typically leading to any sort of fracture through the wrist, potentially wrist dislocation like myself. Google my name. First thing that pops up is my wrist getting dislocated. Fun fact. Um, yeah, it's great. Great traumatic experience. That's still forever enshrined on YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was our favorite video to watch. Yeah, fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so falling on an outstretched hand, typically it's not from an underhook in general. It's using, like we talked about, using the underhook as a transition into different throws um, or different positional places where the defensive wrestler that had the overhook, the one getting thrown, the one getting attacked, has to plant on the ground. You fall with your wrist in extension and your arm outstretched. And this can lead to any, whether it be elbow dislocation, forearm fracture, wrist fracture, or wrist dislocation all the way through that, that upper extremity, right? So ways we can go about this. Everybody tells you, hey, don't post when you get thrown. Hey, don't post when you get taken down. Well, fucking listen to them, please. For, for the, your local healthcare provider, me, please listen to them. Do not post your hand. That is literally a, that is a whole day of class talking about falling on an outstretched hand in sports medicine. That is an entire one day of four hours of lecture on that fucking injury. Cause it happens so much, especially for combat sports. Just do what yep. I do and try and lat drop or rethrow on everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who just, cares if you, if you go to your back, you lose. So go, what go for broke every time. Why wouldn't yeah. you, you got to risk it <laughs> to get the biscuit. Amen. <laughs> uh, but so that's a very, very common one. Typically, if that occurs, hopefully there's a competent sports medical or sports medicine professional around there. They can stabilize the joint um, and then off to the hospital. Typically, you'll have a break and then we go into rehab from there. But something to be aware of, because that's a very common thing that occurs out of an underhook are people trying to post leading to a fallen on an outstretched hand injury. Um, Not much to be said about that. Just please tuck your fucking elbow if you get thrown. Second, neural traction issues. Yay. Think about people that are jacking up underhooks and pulling you down, using that underhook in that controlling position that me and Alex are talking about, where we lift your center of gravity up and then pull you down from the shoulder. Lift the center of gravity up and then pull you down from the shoulder. If you do this, we'll say with A, a high velocity, or B, too many times, and you're the person getting underhooked, typically this can lead to any sort of, if it's, if it's really bad, a brachial plexopathy, which is a big old fucking word for it adds a lot of tension to the nervous system of the shoulder blade because that's it goes from the neck to the shoulder and then down the arm. If you're doing it at a proximal location, which aka the shoulder blade, it can add irritation in the area, which sucks. Fucking painful, guys. Not a fun thing. So think about like after a very a great example is say you have a grappling practice in the we're focusing on Greco that day, doing a shitload of underhooks. You're going with a a D1 wrestler, and this motherfucker is just throwing you around, up and down, up and down, left and right. And then your muscles get sore. Your traps feel really, really tight because that's typically – that's going to be the next podcast. Spoiler alert. But your your traps get really tight, and they start to cause spasm. Um, Potentially not painful, but just tight. And then you try to strike in the afternoon. Say you have a Muay Thai class in the afternoon. And every time you throw your right hand, because that was the arm you had the overhook with that was getting viciously assaulted by the wrestler, you feel a stinger down the arm. 
and oh my god your shoulder blade is feels like it's burning it's a stinger all the way down to your elbow every single time you extend that so what actually occurs right there um, and obviously there could be a bunch of things but if that is the main mechanism of injury if that's the only thing that can connect the pieces that up and down up and down left and right of the shoulder blade in that increased velocity actually causes a stretch effect because people don't realize that the nerves stretch, glide, slide, all these different things like muscles do. It's causing a stretch that the nerve wasn't ready for, a gliding sensation that the nerve wasn't ready for, or a sliding sensation that potentially the nerve can't do, or traction, if you will, is the common term. It's tractioning the brachial plexus, causing irritation in that area. If that irritation goes on repetitively, or it's one large incident, then that can cause damage in the area, which pew, 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 causes a pain sensation to the brain or a that fire that you feel. Because typically, if you feel a sharp, like zinger type pain or burning, it's not your muscle. <laughs> That's a, that is a nerve symptom for everybody at home listening, right? So if we do add those different traction injuries in, you start to feel that burning or that zinger, that electric shock down your arm. That's a pretty good will say a pretty good indicator that you have you're dealing with something as far as a neural tension issue due to the repetitive overstretch or overgliding of that brachial plexus because of the grappling instance. So ways that we can get around that, we could detension the nervous system, which in a post from and when this gets released probably about a month ago, we talked about self-care for the neck. You can elevate that trap. So purposefully detension that shoulder blade. And then lean your head away, which opens up that IVF or where the nerve leaves the neck and gives a little bit more room to breathe. That's a fantastic way on your own to see if it decreases the tension you're feeling. Um, but again, at the end of the day, please go get it assessed and see if it's actually nervous or if it's muscular or whatever it may be and get some self-care tailored to you as well as a little bit of treatment to help accelerate the process. That was my exact thought. That was what I thought. I mean, with the elevation and the the, I don't know, the grind or the, the rigor that his shoulders are going through when we get into that underhook position, whether it's, you know, being pulled around, snapped down, um, stabilizing against all that stuff or whatever. And for me, it goes straight into the traps into the neck and, and tension that way, because I mean, that's what I deal with every day, probably. <laughs> but, um, but exactly like the more stress that that area goes under, the more that your body and your central nervous system tries to prepare for that stress chronically, right? Mm -hmm. So that becomes what, what you might feel as tight muscles, but in reality, it's your brain sending signal says some shit might go down in this area. I better protect my neck at all times, right? So that's where you get tight traps from. Um, so like I said, check out the the post uh, that's self-care for your neck that's on our Building a Fighter Instagram. But it's also just having a general awareness of these are some of the things that you're going to run into when you grapple and when you you know practice if your profession's MMA. Um, how can we best equip ourselves to handle them? Because that's, that's again, part of the, the health and high performance um, relationship is even though an elevated trap, uh, quote unquote, shelling up, like Austin was saying in boxing is going to be beneficial. Like that was beneficial for me as a wrestler It's beneficial for a lot of wrestlers, because if you're not prepared to not get snapped down, you're going to get face planted on a snap down. So mm -hmm. you need to prepare against that. And so it can be beneficial, but when they were in the weight room, it's probably not beneficial for me to train shrugs. I don't need to nope. give a wrestler doing, you know, hundred pound shrugs for four sets of 20. Like, 
that's practice for them. And plus that's not even the correct muscle contraction anyway, but, (laughs) (laughs) but what I need to do is get them in a a healthier place so that I can almost counter some of the stress that they see in practice, because I don't need to compound the, the, quote unquote overtraining of the specific muscle loading that is in practice, I can complement that and take some of that tension away or build up stronger patterns. So we have an overall picture of robustness in our health rather than a specific do it until you die type of approach. Um, so that all being said goes into my programming and my planning on a strength and conditioning front of understand what your athletes are going through on the mat, in the ring, whatever you're doing so that you can plan accordingly and maybe put a, a corrective exercise or a prehab exercise to counter that movement when they're in the weight room. Well, right. And I mean, this might be breaking it down too far, but something I just thought of is so uh, since underhooks are typically a transitionary um, place or a transitionary position, typically that's going to lead to chain wrestling, if you will. So stick with me. So a lot of the times then if, if you're chain wrestling, that's probably going to be anywhere between a 20 second to 30 second exchange for the most part. Yeah, unless if you're good, and, if you hope. Yeah. I was about <laughs> to say, unless you suck or the person you're wrestling with sucks. Um, if there's a little flourage back or flurry back and forth, it's going to be at least 15 seconds, but probably about 20 to 30 seconds. That also leads into, if we really want to talk about conditioning aspects and conditioning the upper body, if we want to break it down to micro movements and micro, micro, micro movements for this case, if we're, if we have somebody that's a great underhooker, typically they're going to have a pretty well-developed lactic system or like uh, lactic power intervals that may be. Um, but if they don't, and they're trying to learn an underhook as a strength coach, this is something that you could potentially consider to throw into their program to try to be, Hey, what's their goal. If they tell you their goal right now is trying to get better at underhooks, trying to get better at Greco wrestling, trying to be able to dominate cage wrestling. That's when we start opening up the lactate thresholds. That's where we start bringing those different upper body lactate work in to allow us to build into their goal. Cause at the end of the day, it's all around how they want to progress as a fight. Well, exactly. And I thought this is where I thought you were going with that, but like we can specify it too. Um, I guess immediately to contradict what I said about not specifying Um, if we're trying to build and we have a different goal set in mind, besides um, uh, tackling pain and uh, accomplishing a healthy, robust system. If we have the idea, we need more stress here. We need to build it up. We can stress that in the weight room. Uh, Some of the best ways that I've seen that done. I like farmer carries specifically. I like inertia wave and ropes. I mean, those are nothing new, but teaching it through a correct stabilization pattern might be something new. Uh, bear crawls, plank positions, scapular movement. Um, a fuck ton of ISOs. Fuck ton of ISOs. Hand ladders, you know, if you're yeah. looking for upper body plyometric, like moving through the ladder with your hand, I'm, I'm sure you can find some of that stuff. But those are general means to create a work capacity that so you can handle some of the stuff that happens in practice. If we have an athlete that's super deconditioned to underhook and grappling and wrestling, then we can supplement some of this stuff in our strength conditioning workouts and our sports performance workouts to build some capacity simply so that the the tissue and the physiology is, is more ready to handle a two hour practice where underhooks are the, the focal point. Right. So um, I think, upper body, um, work capacity or lactic capacity is something that goes, um, kind of by the wayside because it's, it's just less popular or less logical. Um, 
Well, and typically it's harder to program. To, it's, it's more complex, right? There's yeah. not as many options as lower body lactic where yeah, you, you can do just all these different go on a bike or whatever. Exactly. Unless you Run. got a fucking arm erg, which yeah. those suck anyways. Um, but air bike without legs. Period. Yeah. Like that's there you go. Modality. That shit's hard. Um, yeah, right. But funny story. That's why I ended up buying my inertia wave yeah. because yeah, like for the people that don't know, good old Hunter Azure, my boy. <laughs> Uh, he, he won his fight. Uh, was it, was it Cole Smith? Yeah, it was Cole Smith. He fought this lanky motherfucking Canadian. A lot of wrestling was taking place. I wasn't to a that's foresight on my end, or maybe he just actually, he just changed game plans in the middle of the fight that we were planning on striking. He decided to wrestle the grapple fuck him. <laughs> and in his post fight interview talks about how tired his arms are. I'm like, this motherfucker's just ta- calling me out in the middle of fucking ESPN this dude. So immediately the next day, funny enough. So two parts to the story. One, as soon as I heard that, I look, I go online. I'm like, what are some upper body implements that can act or that I can use as lactic, uh, lactic buffers and, and lactic training. Right. I'm not a huge fan personally of, um, regular battling ropes because the weighted aspect to it, typically people, when I see battling ropes done, typically it's very, very poorly right? It's lots of scapular movement, not a whole bunch of shoulder stability because the rope is so fucking heavy. So I find this inertia wave, which is basically however much you want to put into it, the inertia comes back at you. So how hard you push, that's how hard it actually comes back at you. Think about like a flywheel, if you will, like a K box, um, but just for the upper body. So I immediately buy this inertia wave because I'm like, I'm not letting anybody call me out on TV again. Fuck that. Um, and then the same fucking day, inertia wave contacts Hunter about what he said in his fucking post fight interview saying, Hey, have you ever tried our, have you ever tried our product? We'd love to hook you up with one, um, to try to work on it. So he never took him up on it. And I bought this inertia wave. He comes in and he's like, these guys actually contacted me the day of my fight talking about like, it'd be good to train. I'm like, it all comes together. It's a full circle. It was like meant to be that we got this inertia wave. And the guys that own it, the guy that owns is a super cool guy, great, like family owned company. But overall, I thought it was a funny story. I got called on on TV and that's why I got my inertia wave. And now I fucking love it. Yeah. So I think that's a bona fide story for the inertia wave. And again, I'm a big fan as well. Um, yeah. It's easy to use, dude. It's super light. It's, I mean, there's all these different patterns you can do. You can do it with trunk training. Yeah. You, yeah it's, 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 a, it's a good product for sure. It's a good use for of a hundred sure. bucks. Mm-hmm. Yep. What else but, do we got on underhooks, the shoulder girdle, whatever? No, I, I think the high, the high points here, we talked about the injuries and we talked mm-hmm. about the training and we talked about the biggest thing that I think that people can get out of this podcast is uh, it's intentional positioning, right? Yeah, It's absolutely. using your underhook as an intentional position, whether it's MMA, whether it's wrestling, because we kind of talk about MMA wrestling for the most part, but mm-hmm. in wrestling, it's the exact same thing. Using the underhook as a intentional position to then open up scoring opportunities because way too many people, myself included, when I was a wrestler, just hang on an underhook and they're like, oh, I'm safe here. It's like a safety blanket, if you will, by holding on an underhook. Because like, I don't know, I'm not a big thrower, but I never got thrown. I think I got fived once in my life by, what is it, Ronaldo Rodriguez Spencer from New York. If you're listening, you're lucky I don't come down there and five you right now. Alex, I would fuck you. Up. <laughs> I know you would. But you think you think you might be in my weight class now, but I promise you, you're not. I would fuck you up, anyways. <laughs> yeah. um, but so many people use the underhook as a safety blanket, when in reality, it's a tool to be used to open up offense. All right. 
And totally agree. I think the technical aspects and the the grappling and wrestling, how to utilize the underhook. I mean, that's that's something that we're aware of and we know about, but our specialties and our um, backgrounds definitely lead us into, you know, training methods and injury prevention and stuff. And that's where we can get a lot out of these, you know, grappling with biomechanics because we can actually highlight the other end of things that, that like gets less attention. Like every jujitsu coach, every wrestling coach, every whoever else is going to know the advantages of an underhook, but we can highlight some of the physiological, the anatomical, processes that help with these positions too one last thought before we leave because i thought of it and it's important so okay. when using under when using an underhook it's extremely important we've talked about centration of the shoulder on the offensive side right yeah. but you should also be thinking when you get an underhook you want to use your leverage and try to decentrate your opponent's shoulder right yeah. a lot of the times people stay too sh- if you're trying to do a control-based underhook so you're grabbing the top of the scap they stay too shallow and they're not actually underneath in that armpit and digging in to control the position and decentrating their shoulder to yeah. decrease their ability to overhook you or wizard kick you, whatever it may be. Absolutely. Because that, that counter, the overhook and the wizard comes from the other athlete locking their shoulder down and centrating that. So like if you can prevent your opponent from getting into a good position, you're winning the, the exchange. Exactly. So if, if we're doing like, unless we're doing that, like I, I talked about in, the beginning that freestyle greco that really 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 shallow when you're at the bottom of the shoulder blade underhook if we're doing a control based underhook use it for control get underneath the armpit get underneath the shoulder blade and decentrate their shoulder because they aren't going to have the maximal muscle recruitment to then try to use their shoulder to stabilize the overhook and then effectively defend your position too many people stay too shallow if you're trying to control with an underhook and they that's what's actually fucking up when their opponent gets off the cage or their opponent's able to wizard kick them or shrimp right out with that arm. Yeah. Limp arm into the uh, back inside. So yep. yeah, I think but, that's a good little technical tidbit at the end. But yeah. So please, if you listen, like, share, subscribe, do all the cool shit that allows us to become friends with your friends and talk to new people. Uh, we do have our website, which is live. We have our custom programming, which is available. We have our, uh, it's our phase one. If you want to just go based off phases. So it's an out of camp phase based around building that strength up. That's also available on the website. We're also going to be launching a subscription mobility service that is tailored to grappling athletes and trying to build up that mobility through the hips, the shoulders, basically all the joints that are extremely important to grappling. Similar to if you've heard of mobility wad and one of those services, but tailored to the grappling athlete. Um, yeah. If, if you rate us, please rate us on Apple and uh, as well as are there any ones, other ones that can do rates? Stitcher? No, Spotify doesn't, but... Anything that you can rate us on, give us that five stars. <laughs> I like I like five stars. Just like he's uh, like skin fived by me in a couple months. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Whatever, <laughs> dude. <laughs> uh, but thank you all for listening. This is Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And we are out.